I thought if you told people facts, they'd draw their conclusions. And because the facts were true, the conclusions mostly would be too. But we don't run on facts, we run on stories about things, about people. El podcast interplanetario. La exploración del espacio en beneficio de toda la humanidad. Sus anfitriones en Inglaterra y los Países Bajos, Matt Russell y Julio Aprea. Oh yeah, baby James S.A. Corey. Well, actually, that person does not exist, Matt. I did not know this. I did not know this. This is a pseudonym, and the real authors of The Expanse are Daniel Abraham and Ty Frank. If I'm really honest, I didn't really know that the books came first. Have you read the books? No, you're going to take the mickey at me now. I have not read the books. <laughs> I've only okay. seen the TV. I, I read program. the books. I, I read the books before the show came out. But <laughs> I, I, I was there before they became cool, you know. <laughs> but I just want to point this out: the Expanse has never been cool. It's it's a oh, great it's show. It's the coolest sci-fi show out there. I th- maybe maybe for all mankind gets there too. Yeah, I've or, just started. As you know, Battlestar Galactica. But, as you know, I've yeah. only just started watching For All Mankind. I do think For All Mankind's really really excellent. After the disappointment, just spectacular. Yeah, after the disappointment of some of the other space things like I like don't get me started on stowaway I haven't watched it yet I'm not going to give any spoilers but I found it pretty <laughs> really irritating and and disappointing and just totally unbelievable so okay but we started the show running in a way yeah um, yeah we did right? we did a bit uh, I I think I, I think for all mankind, once you are uh, caught up, up to speed, I think it would be really cool to do an episode of the historical parallels between the show itself and, and what really happened in our timeline. It might even be interesting to explore other timelines, a third timeline, yeah. Yeah, that, that would work really well for a short a, show. A bit like, yeah, a bit like in The Man in the High Castle when there's other timelines on the films. I have not watched yeah. that one and please don't spoil okay. it. By the way, yeah. by the way, yeah, let's yeah. let's let's <laughs> let's uh, warn the audience that today uh, we are going to be talking about the science of the expanse. Mm-hmm. The t- the TV show for you, the books for me. <laughs> uh, I was I also watched the TV show. I love it. We will not be going through the storyline bit by bit. We're not going to spoil the whole thing, but we are going to mention a few things here and there that could be considered spoilers at some point. Mm. So for those that really want to stay away from that. Switch off now. They, yeah, switch off now for the next <laughs> well, hour no, and don't, a half. Don't switch off just yet, because before we start our breakdown of The Expanse, I think we should congratulate China, just because Definitely. I think that that's huge. China have landed on Mars successfully, and if that's not big news, I don't know what is, because they're the only the second nation ever to really achieve that. Successfully. Successfully, yeah. I mean, you've had the Russians who did it first but and transmitted a photo, but the photo was totally useless and then it broke. So we can't really count that. And obviously we went we did a big long rundown of Russia's really quite woeful. I think they've been very unlucky actually, the Russians and with Mars. Of course we've got the terribly distressing British landing where it, it worked but didn't quite and then, of course, you've got the European one with the old uh, Chaparelli doing a bit of lipho breaking straight into the surface. <laughs> yes, I was in a meeting when that happened. Oh, 
it was interesting to see the development in real time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, I bet it was. I bet it was. But no, the Chinese have ach- yeah. achieved it, and that is no mean. Fi- it's massive as well. It's about time. It's about time to to have more more uh, countries yeah. in Mars. It, it's a big old thing as well that they managed to get down onto the surface. It, it's not like a sort of small robotic stuff. It's a lander with a rover on board, and the rover's almost six foot tall. <laughs> it's like that's uh, that's about one eighty one eighty five. Yeah, that's my that's my height. Wow, that's but it has a mass of two hundred and forty kilos. Mm. That's not my mass. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a little bit, it's a little bit chunky, a little bit chunky say, than, like, than a hoodie on, on the BMI. <laughs> the... Yeah, but it's it's big, isn't it? And that's just the rover, which was recently named Le Jurong, a mytho-historical figure associated with fire and light, and is meant to ignite the fire of interstellar exploration in China and to symbolise the Chinese people's determination to explore the stars and to uncover unknowns in the universe, some people might say, to venture into the expanse. Yeah, we, we have talked in the past about how cool the, the names the Chinese yeah, choose. Yeah, I love the, the Chinese names. Are, and the celestial, celestial castles and these sort of things. Zhurong sounds like Mercury in the, what is it, the Greek or the Roman pantheon? Like the equivalent of Apollo, I suppose. Yeah, I don't know, Zhurong, but yeah, the, the actual rover... Is is set to go on a little excursion probably in the next week, which will be very exciting, wouldn't it? It's been quite a year for Mars. Yep, a massive year for Mars, massive year for China. So congratulations, China. <laughs> Let's go into the expanse. Let's go on to the expanse. So they also have some some human rights issues in the expanse. <laughs> by, they by definitely well. We we might mention some of well, them. Well, yeah, I'd, I'd, I I think I think that's one of the reasons why I like talking about it because I think. The Expanse, like a lot of like a lot of science fiction, like if you take Jules Verne and and things like Arthur C. Clarke and all those the, the sci-fi greats, they actually bring up problems before they happen. So they actually sort of say, well, if this happens, then we've got to start thinking about this, and if this happens, we've got to start thinking about this. And so the sci-fi writers in, in writing this stuff kind of flag up that we might have problems further down the line or also flag up what our future might look like to kind of keep us going. Always these sci-fi authors think about possible scenarios in the future. Clearly, they are always very heavily influenced by the situation at the time of the writing. Okay, you can think maybe not so much space-related, but H.G. Wells uh, with with the shape of things to come as well, thinks of a future based on what he lived through the, the world wars or uh, the, the political environment in, in the UK at that time. Or uh, uh, 1984, uh, Big Brother. <laughs> anyway, they tend to think either in utopias or nightmare scenarios as well, dystopian futures. And, and sometimes they act as encouragement, inspiration, and sometimes they act as a warning. And I think in both cases, it's very valuable work from science fiction. Yeah. I mean, H.G. Wells is obviously, well, it's just an absolute classic, isn't he, really? Yeah. Born in Kent, if you want to know, and went uh, went to Imperial College, just like Brian May and Helen Sharman. <laughs> there we go. What are the odds? By, by the way, you mentioned Jules Verne. Mm. What do you think of the Jules Verne spaceport or Jules Verne space center? I, I think that that's actually so good 
the Guiana Space Center should be called the Jules Verne Spaceport. That that I think it should be an interplanetary campaign. I think there's a case. We're calling it space, uh, Europe Spaceport at the moment, or Guiana Spaceport, or Space Center, and I think it would be very inspiring to rename it to the, something the like Jules, Jules Verne, Verne Spaceport. Is Spaceport brilliant? Yeah, I love that. He's he's French, right? Yep. And again, I, I had to check maybe he was from some <laughs> Belgium, French colony. Some... <laughs> yeah. Um, no, yeah, I think it would be a really good name. And, and worldwide, uh, I mean, most science fiction authors are uh, heavily uh, influencing uh, figures of today, like Jeff Bezos, were hmm. inspired by Jules Verne. Well, it has to be said, I mean, anyone, anyone that's in science or in things like you know, making rocket ships or looking at the stars, almost certainly like 90% of them have been influenced by sci-fi writers, right? And and people like Jules Verne and Heinlein and people like that. I have to say I have sometimes met people that work in, in space industry and have no background on sci-fi, no background on <laughs> Star Trek, Star Wars, mm. any of that. I, before joining this industry, I always thought that we were all going to be a bunch of space nerds. Yeah. But no, it's surprising how many reasonable people, <laughs> normal <What>? people, <laughs> we have highly competent normal yeah. people are working in the space industry that that really have no interest on sci-fi. It's like that weird time where you talk to someone and, and they confess that they've never seen Star Wars. That always gets me. But anyway, the expanse. What I think I, what I think the expanse is a bit, a little bit like Jules Verne. So when Jules Verne was writing, he was writing about a kind of near future, wasn't he? He was, he was, he was writing about something that was feasible within a hundred years and I, within within a lifetime. Yeah, yeah. So yes. it was looking. You know, you could see that the march of time towards it, and I, and I think the expanse is a kind of what what we call hard sci-fi isn't it where it's it's sci-fi but it tries to get the physics reasonably right even though and I, I totally by you know I totally think this that the, any fiction should be about telling a story and 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 talking about human emotions and things and so you shouldn't let the science get in the way what well, well, i agree on you on that is but at the same time that science and technology available are what can are the tools that you have in order to tell the story hmm. because if you can just invent anything for convenience then it's just magic and then you end up with star wars yeah well, Star Wars yeah. is an alternate is completely an alternate timeline, isn't it? It's not. It's not even doesn't even need to be humans in another galaxy a long, long time and, ago. And essentially, the yeah. same with Star Trek is so far down the road that they can do things like uh, transportation. You know, the the teleport and the and faster than light travel and warp drives and things like this, which are just things to help the story get pushed along. And you just have to just say it's magic. You know. Yet Star Trek is a couple of hundreds of years into the future. There is a timeline behind that. But yes, it, they were it looks highly, yes. highly optimistic. Yes, it looks wild. Highly optimistic now, with the it? I wonder if they had some some physics advisor. Well I, <laughs> I well actually I think that says Star a lot. Trek. Don't you think that says a lot that in the sixties I think that Star Trek probably didn't seem that unfeasible. I mean, there's certain things like teleportation and warp drive that, that 
probably seemed like you know they're they're obviously storing storytelling things mm-hmm. but to to think that that in say two or three hundred years man might be out going into the you know into the galaxy in starships didn't didn't seem that ridiculous because they'd made so much progress from the Wright brothers to Saturn V. <laughs> <laughs> and you think God, Look, you I, I'm currently reading a book on 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 just space exploration history, the real history, okay? The Penguin Book of Space Exploration by, by John Loxton. He's a very renowned space historian. This whole recount of official documents from the sixties all the way to the eighties the on the decisions that, that shaped space exploration of the US. And in some cases, they are talking about just after Apollo 11, and this is like memos from the president or recordings mm. and things like that. And they are talking about scenarios of going to Mars and, are, and landing in Mars in the early 80s. So they really thought that this was possible. I think we should get onto one of the reasons why it hasn't been. because Politics. Well, politics is one, but I do think... That, that there has been a roadblock in terms of propulsion, in terms of, in terms of the fact that the way that rockets work hasn't changed. There's been absolutely no massive breakthrough there at all. In fact, Saturn V is still the biggest and most powerful rocket by miles that's ever flown off the surface of Earth. And it's now, yeah. you know, fifty-five years old, <laughs> and it's still- yeah. You could say you could say that uh, reusability currently could be the the biggest breakthrough to mm. rocket propulsion, or not rocket propulsion itself, but rocket transport, chemical transport, uh, <laughs> chemical propulsion-based transport operations. But you could say that that's what they were saying in the seventies when they were designing the space shuttle. Yes, but the space shuttle did not deliver the reusability mm. that they were expecting. No. They no. were talking about the launch a week, and then you ended up, well, in some cases more, in some specific years, up to, I think, six launches. But normally you would get, what, four launches of space shuttle per year mm. around that? Yeah, I mean, it just didn't quite work, did it? And, and yeah. for, With four launches per year... You don't get the economics of 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 reusability ongoing. No. Uh, it's but that's the, but, if, but don't you think that that's the roadblock? In other words, in in the eighties, they thought in the seventies, they're sort of going, yeah, you know, all this is moving forward. We're going from Saturn V to the space shuttle. And when you look at Saturn V, and then you look at the space shuttle, space shuttle looks so futuristic compared to it. And they they they, they had an alternative development uh, to the space shuttle but more for cargo that wasn't based on nuclear propulsion. They were mm. looking into developing a rocket with nuclear propulsion. I just can't recall the name now. Well, of course. So that could be another scenario. Yeah, well, nuclear propulsion, we should talk about that because that is something that the Expanse seems to do. Oh, you know, One of the things that they have is this thing called, what, what's it called? The Epstein Drive. Epstein Drive. The, 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 the Expanse at the beginning, the book, it, it's a... Keystone, uh, it lives and dies by the existence of the Epstein Drive. Uh, according to the books, before the Epstein Drive, uh, basically chemical-based propulsion was more or less what we have today. Okay, so the same uh, <laughs> tyranny of the rocket equation, needing m- a lot of mass to move a lot of mass, and and 
I don't know if you want to explain that a little bit. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's just it goes back to Newton's a couple of Newton's laws of motion, doesn't it? You, you know, every, all all rocket propulsion is essentially if you've got nothing to push against, which you don't when you're up in the air or out in space, you have to be pushing something behind you so that there's a, an equal force pushing you forwards, right? I don't know if that's mm-hmm. probably the best way of saying it, but it re- it's the second and third laws of motion of, of, the, the of Isaac basic, Newton. The basic of propulsion, yeah. yes. Uh, and, you, you push yourself <laughs> forward by pushing something else backwards. And, of course, Salkovsky yeah. noticed the horrible thing about that is that you need fuel and you need you need the stuff to chuck out the back. And therefore, if you're carrying you that, carry it with you. You, you need to then have fuel to carry that. And then you need to have fuel that carries that. So something like Saturn V weighed 3,000 tonnes on the launch pad to get 50 tonnes to the moon. So barely 1.5% of the mass of the original (laughs) rocket is actually usable mass. And what I found, this is the bit that I absolutely love. If the Earth was a little bit bigger, chemical propulsion would start to become completely impractical. So if the world it was just work. a little bit bigger, Saturn V wouldn't work. You'd have to have more stages. And if it gets to if you, if you get to 10G, this is my favorite. If you get to 10G, you start to have to use a sizable fraction of the mass of the planet itself to get off the planet. <laughs> which which I think is absolutely hilarious. In other words, but then again, had the earth been a little bit less massive, yeah. it would be so easy. Imagine if yeah, if the if we would like Mars. Yeah, like Mars, if if Mars had sort of remained had an atmosphere and life had started there, god, it'd be so much easier, wouldn't it? Well, if we could if we could terraform Mars, then getting out of Mars would be rather easy. Yeah. I mean, how easy? Uh, which again, the expanse are working on terraforming. We should. Get yeah, to we'll that get to terraform. But let's let's focus. Let's focus right now on the on the Epstein. So drive. the Epstein drive. It seems to be that this this from the episode that I saw where it gets switched off by the the ring, which is another completely different thing. But that we, we are not. I yeah, think let, the ring. Let's stay just, away. From let's the not ring. go into the let's ring. Let's not get let's stay the away ring. from the let, ring because that is the magic item. That is the magic item uh, that opens yes. up interstellar travel. But so. But the Epstein drive really is just there so that you can zip around the solar system reasonably fast without six... You know, uh, currently we're stuck with a six-month journey to Mars, and that would definitely ruin the storylines in 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 The Expanse, right? So um, you have to have a much faster rocket ship. So it looks like it's nuclear propulsion or the type of nuclear propulsion that is confinement pellet, pellets that are confined and set off like little hydrogen bombs, tiny pellets that essentially become hydrogen bombs. All of that energy is sent out of a nozzle, like a torch, this bright light out the back of this rocket, and, and you, you're getting quite a bit of thrust. Yeah. A very, very good specific a impulse. very good specific impulse. The community has, cal- has made some estimations of the specific inf- impulse of this drive. It seems to be between 1.1 million seconds to 1.93 million seconds for the Rosinante, the, mm. the main the main spaceship in, in the show. And just for reference, the HM7B, the, which is the engine that we use on the upper stage of Ariane 5, is around 440 seconds. 440 compared to almost 2 million. And 440 is... Kind of considered it's, on the high side for good. chemical propulsion. Yeah, okay. Good. 
Of course, you have also some uh, electric electric propulsion engines. But they're only in the thousands, aren't they? That well, uh, some of them can go as high as to twenty thousand seconds. Again, far lower. Than and million. of course, they do not. They they, they are not. Uh, they cannot be used. Their thrust is not such that you can use it to escape Earth's gravity. Mm. Uh, electric propulsion drives are are awesome for constant propulsion, very economical propulsion. While once you are in space, but we can see these massive spaceships from the expanse. Some of them are what they call as atmospheric types that can go in and out of, of the atmosphere, and they are still using the Epstein drive. So we can say that the Epstein drive has incredible efficiency, but also sufficient thrust to escape Earth, Earth gravity. Yeah, well, the thrust is roughly equivalent to the thrust of a of a Saturn V, wasn't it? The the F one engine. Uh, if if the Epstein drive, that Solomon Epstein the fictional character, when he invents it, he actually dies in the invention because it the ship takes him on a 7G acceleration for 37 hours and he gets to 5% of the speed of light and dies in the process, obviously. And then has no more fuel to, to flip yeah. and burn and, well, and turn he's, back. He's done for anyway, isn't yes. he? 7Gs going all the time, which we'll get onto in a minute because 7Gs, it's not, it's not the best for you. But uh, so... If you have pellets, and and the sort of the, the sci-fi trope is normally pellets of helium three, isn't it? Because helium three has a special type of uh, of fusion that means it doesn't create many neutrons. And neutrons are a bit of a problem because because they're not charged particles. You can't use magnetic you fields, accelerate them. magnetic fields to yeah. accelerate them out in the right direction so they just fly off in all different places. Because that, that is one of the principles as well of electric propulsion, the use of uh, electrically charged particles yeah. accelerated with magnetic, magnetic, magnetic fields. This is why you can have such a small mass accelerated to sometimes relativistic speeds. Yeah. Well, it's all about exhaust velocity, isn't it? It's how how yes. fast you can get your exhaust affects your specific impulse, specific impulse being a measurement of efficiency, a bit like miles per gallons in a car. But the way I the, the way I sort of saw this is if you because you need so much power, this is like the this this spaceship would have been flying with something like 35 terawatts of energy into this drive. Now, just to put that into perspective, the, the whole of the UK <laughs> runs on 35 gigawatts. That's, that's a thousand times less energy than this one ship was using for this flight. Now, imagine you're in a car and petrol, obviously, is burnt really efficiently and turned into forward motion, like actually quite efficiently. Now, the inefficiencies of that process heat the engine up and you have to have water cooling and air cooling and everything else to keep the engine cool. So always a percentage of the of the energy that you're using gets converted into heat or, or is really annoying, basically. You've got to do something with that energy. So the moment you have 35 terawatts of energy, even if, you're, even if your process is wildly efficient, there's still so much energy kicking around <laughs> that it's almost certainly going to destroy your spaceship. It, 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 well, it's physics. You you cannot have a perfect transformation of energy. No. Some of the some of it will generate 
heat. Yeah. And that heat needs to be dissipated. So at these levels, that's a lot of heat. <laughs> yeah. And you need to be dissipating. But also, you, you were talking about the, the amount of energy that you need to run this drive. Um, again, another mm. characteristic of electric propulsion is that you also need really a, a lot of power to run these drives. And this is why uh, spacecrafts that, are, that use electric propulsion need to have especially big or especially efficient uh, solar panels. I don't see many solar panels <laughs> in the expanse. I mean, the, these ships would have to look like Rosetta in a way. To, yeah, but I mean, actually they may not need the solar panels because they may be getting the energy from the nuclear material itself, mightn't they? So that, like the pellet generates the the power required to chuck itself out the, out the back at these very high with the explosion with the explosion so you're getting you're getting the double whammy with nuclear fuels and i think that's why you know there is a movement isn't there right now to sort of re-explore nuclear propulsion you know blue origin have just run a won a contract from nasa to do precisely that the uk space agency have been talking about it recently so nuclear propulsion i think is back on the cards precisely because of all these things that you get out of it but when you look at designs by people like the British Interplanetary Society for their for these nuclear fusion drives to do interstellar travel, these spacecraft are absolutely huge, and most of it are radiating panels to radiate this waste heat away. <laughs> There's a technology in the expanse that we're not being made aware of, <laughs> in other words. Technically... It's not an impossible drive. No, it's not impossible. No, it, it it does not. In theory, in theory, you should not break the laws of physics. No, it's just is it practical? <laughs> I I don't know if we will ever get to something like this, or maybe there will be another different breakthrough. But okay, what what is your take on the on the realism of this engine? For the storyline, it's got to be a 10 out of 10, isn't it? Basically, without it, we don't have this community that are able to sort of zip around the solar system, right? As in, it's, right. it's And there are a few essential. other consequences from it that I'll mention in a moment, but... Just the fact that we're talking about these absolutely huge numbers, it seems to be based on nuclear fusion technology. When you start looking at the numbers... It doesn't look feasible, does it? That there, there would have to be a remarkable breakthrough and control. Not to say that that's not that's not going to happen, but okay, Matt. But you you're a man that is known for taking certain bets, yeah, on eating certain things in case some <laughs> things happen or not on a certain <laughs> timeline. Tell me, do you think something with the characteristics of the Epstein drive could happen? in the next, I don't know, 300 years? What, what do you think is the chances think, of I that? Think I think maybe 300 years, yeah. I think I think so, actually. Thinking about it, in 300 years, yeah. I mean, we're talking from the sailboat to the Saturn V, aren't we? Timeline. But it would require new physics. It would require an entirely new invention. What do you think? <laughs> it's, a, it's a science fiction drive. I was just testing you. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to see if in 300 years, if it still it doesn't exist, what you can offer to to it. What book will you eat in 300 years if it doesn't happen? Uh. Because we will all be around in 300 years, thanks to the biological developments of the expanse. Well, potentially. But anyway, going back to the 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 Epstein drive, uh, because it's thanks to the the Epstein drive 
enables a few things that are quite important for the for the storyline of the books. It helps with certain other technological limitations of space travel. When you have an engine that is so efficient like the Epstein drive, you can pretty much run it constantly. If you run the engine constantly, you can be constantly accelerating. And what happens if you're constantly accelerating? You are generating artificial gravity. So many of the space operations within the expanse use the the maneuver, the the type of traveling which you, when you travel somewhere, you, you constantly accelerate up to the middle point. When you reach that middle point, you flip the spaceship around and burn in the opposite direction for braking, but that is also generating a, 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 a artificial gravity inside the ship. This is also why I'm totally fine when watching this show and people are just walking around in the spaceship because that is a feasible type of, of travel that you can do. On top of that, of course, they have, a, a, they don't mention it much in the, in the show, but they use magnetic boots so that when, if the engine shuts down unexpectedly, they don't just all go floating around. Yeah, they make a lot of noise, don't they? The magnetic boot boots in the expanse and in the TV series, so they're, they're continually it's clinking a lot of around. Effort to, yeah. It's a lot of effort to walk around as well. You can see how they get exhausted by walking with the magnetic, ma- magnetic uh, What boots. I like about that is that there's obviously a sensor that looks at your leg about when you're about to pull your foot off the ground because the little red light goes off. So presumably it's an electromagnet that keeps going on and off so that when you pull your leg off, you're not actually, when you lift your foot. Yeah, otherwise as you are in yeah. the middle of the step, yeah. you would have the force pulling you down. But okay, that is regarding artificial gravity. The one thing that a fighter pilot can do, for example, is is sustain high Gs, as in when they're turning, you obviously feel um, gravity like you've just explained. And you can and you can yes. go up to pretty high G's as a fighter pilot if you've trained, but not for very long. You can only do it and for a few seconds. Yeah, and you can only do it for a few seconds. If you're doing it for an hour, it's highly likely you're going to get a stroke or, you know, that the blood isn't getting to your brain properly, isn't getting to a certain organs properly, and you almost certainly will die. Yes. So and <laughs> we, when when we were talking about the space travel with the flip and burn, we were talking about in the books at least they don't even go up to a full G. Sometimes mm. like a third of G is considered sufficient to. Uh, it's, it's more or less what we we consider that it still can cover the physiologic physiological effect of gravity. Mm. However, if you have to make an evasive maneuver because you're about to be shot by a torpedo or in warfare within the expanse, yes, indeed, you have to do some burns that can reach these multiple Gs. And what do they do for that? So, yes, I actually really like this idea, and I actually think that there's some legs to it, some legs to it. I think that and they have this injection called the juice, which is essentially <laughs> to, to help them with, with long-term acceleration so if if you have to intercept another spacecraft you can you can pull like seven g's for a couple of hours or 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 a couple of days in in some cases isn't it in the books i believe but the um yeah this juice actually means that you're you can physiologically cope with that maneuver now 
I don't think it's and crash couches. As yeah, well. so crash couches and and presumably the spacesuits themselves. So just just as a fighter pilot, fighter pilots do actually have flight suits that squeeze their entire bodies to offset the g forces. And and obviously mm-hmm. that that helps a little bit, but it can only go so far because you've got air in your lungs and you've got little bits pockets of air all around your body in various places. Yeah. And of course that would mean you're in you're in severe trouble because it's it's all about kind of changes of density, isn't it? So you can you can you can be suspended in gel is one way of doing it. But I think the approach of this juice must be to fill all the parts of your body with some kind of nutrient rich and oxygen rich gel that means that the oxygen's getting to all the parts of your body for extended periods of time in the expanse yeah. they have much more advanced medicine yeah than <laughs> than we obviously it's expected is in the future radiation radiation is another big problem that we have in in for our own space travel we know that one of the biggest risks going to Mars will be the exposure to the radiation along the way. And another medical advancement they, they seem to have is very, very good radiation treatment. Uh, it's just at the beginning of the show, uh, one of the characters, Holden, there is an incident in the, I will not spoil what the incident, <laughs> incident is about, but in the Eros asteroid, and he gets very, very exposed to lethal doses of radiation, and then they can just treat that. And he has to be on medication for the rest of his life, but he's fine. Yeah, I mean, um, I mean, there is some precedent for that. As in, with radiation, potentially, humans have uh, genetic responses to radiation exposure that helps the body repair itself after radiation damage. Otherwise, we'd be just getting cancer all the time or or because, you know, we all get radiation damage all the time from sunburn yes. to everything else. So there are some... But not at the levels no, that hold the no, body. Ob- yeah, obviously you get... <laughs> he would have been there in, in weeks or months. But certain populations have been spotted. So, for example, in Britain, in Cornwall, in fact, where I live here, in, uh, we get exposed to quite high levels of radon in, because of the granite rock. And you would you would expect the population, therefore, to have slightly higher rates of cancer. And it looks like that's that it's quite the reverse, that maybe the low-level can- uh, low radiation is actually switching on a gene response which is which is which the repairing mechanism the repairing mechanism which which kind of brings me onto this whole idea of epigenetics which I've not seen talked about a lot with the expanse because I it, I was trying to do a bit of research on it yesterday and because obviously we see the belters and the belters just for anyone who hasn't seen the expanse they're they're a group of people that live in the asteroid belt the books start with a world a few, we can say a few hundred years in the future, Mm. in which the exploration of the solar system has happened and there has been a development of certain different factions. You have certainly people on Earth, you have people on Mars, that they are trying to terraform Mars, and then you have the Belters. The Belters are sort of a 
this generalization of everyone else, people living on spaceships, people living in asteroids, even people living in like uh, in Ganymede, for instance, one of uh, Jupiter's moons. And this is all considered to be the belter. So basically this is bag of everyone else. And of course you cannot generalize that, that. And so within that faction, there will be other factions <laughs> because the show is about the future, but this is clearly a criticism or at least a parallel with our world in terms of politics. Okay. You have a, the old planet, the earth ruled by the UN, which come on, that's, I think that's the most unrealistic part of the world of, of the, of the book is that the UN could govern the whole planet. But that is sort of like the old world, that's Europe. Mm. Then you have Mars, which is a relatively young planet in terms of having people in it. These people have a common project to colonize Mars and they have, they have become at some point independent from Earth and they have become super militaristic. That's clearly the US, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. And then of course you have the belt, which are all these parallels with colonialism. The belters, some, many belters have a very thick Afrikaans accent from South Africa. And uh, so you can see, you can see that they are trying to do a parallel either with like African colonies or South American colonies. Uh, and you have this whole thing going on, on that the, the hard relationship between the old world or, or Mars in this case, trying as well, trying to keep control of the belters. Because of course they need the resources, so it's 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 colonial colonialism 101. Just keep the bare minimum for the for the population there that are giving you the resources. Exploit them as much as you can and not care for them. That's the premise of the book. Yeah, and as it happened in our planet two three hundred years ago, right? Yeah, I'd, uh, one of the consequences of being a belter is that you're born outside of a well. They, they, they're now the second generation, third generation, fourth generation people working in the belt, and that so they're not they haven't been born in a gravity well. They haven't been born on a large physical body, and and that's changed them. So in the in they're taller and thinner. Their bones don't grow properly, so they have to have uh, medicines to keep them going the 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 earth can torture them by bringing them back to earth and <laughs> keeping them just normally in a it, cell and, and it's like agony for them because they they just can't cope with the high gravity some of them cannot even go back to a planet because they have lived all the all their life in such low gravity that just going to any planet would crush them. yeah and 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 people sort of think of this as evolution but i don't think it is i think that 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 would be considered an epigenetic change, as in their pheno the phenotype of these belters is being expressed by the fact that that that, that certain genes have been switched on and off um, by by the conditions that they're in. And certainly, you're you're talking only about a few generations down the yeah, line. It can't be you don't evolution, have the can it? Thousands, hundreds of thousands of years you need for actual evolution yeah. to diverge. I think it's we're still we're still talking about one species. Yeah, and and the thing about epigenetic changes that they're not part of evolution. That as in, it doesn't matter how long these things because you, uh, it, like a baby born in in outside of a uh, outside of a gravity well, it's really hard to know exactly what changes would happen to that child? Well, technically the first nine months you are outside of a gravity well. You are floating in the fluid yeah, of yeah, your mum's mm -hmm. belly. 
but you're still so, I mean, of course of course there is gravity but my, my point being yeah. we, we tend to do a parallel of underwater scuba diving as a good way to to train for zero gravity environments and when you're a baby that's where you are yeah but i mean obviously you're you know the first few and i'm born first baby. few months of uh, you know post partum is that what it's called when you know after after birth the first few months of development is going to be seriously important and you wonder how many days it would take to be born outside of the a gravity well where you could never return maybe it's that you know that your bones would develop in such a way and your nervous system would develop in such a way and your heart would develop in a such a such a way that that you could never return so it would be very very hard to actually tell what would happen to a human child? I mean, here's a question for you. And I've been thinking about this loads today is when do you think the first human will be born off planet, off the Earth's surface? I don't know when, but I can tell you where. Most likely in Mars. I think the moon would be safer, wouldn't it? But I don't think it's a matter of safety. Um Oh yeah, actually, if it was on the moon, they'd get the the the, the mother I mean, back. If you're they? on the moon, you just go back to Earth to give birth. Yeah. I mean, you you know, <laughs> like you just go back to Earth. It sounds, yeah. sounds ridiculous, but we're talking about science fiction, right? And uh, I know cases of moms that are expatriates living in country X, and to give birth, they decide to go to their home country because of many causes. Hmm many reasons, uh, being close to the family, knowing better the healthcare system or whatever. So if you're on the, a, a, a mom on the moon, I guess you would just go back, right? Mm. But if you're in Mars, we're talking already well, no multi-planetary <laughs> species. Yeah. I, although if you send a mixed crew and you have all these six months of travel, which are incredibly boring, you better have some, some good... Um, In-flight entertainment. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, the entertainment will be there, but <laughs> contraception, uh, anti uh, I was <laughs> anti-conception because that's more of the Spanish translation, but of course it's contraception. That's, that's what is going to happen. Yeah, but how far away do you think that is? And do you actually think, without futuristic medical intervention, actually give birth on Mars? You're assuming you're in yeah. Mars in some sort of base or dome yeah. or whatever, so why not? I mean, what what would be so so bad about giving birth on Mars? If if you if there is a society there, mm. or at least if you have the first few colonists, it's just a matter of time. You the people are not going to stop having babies because they are on Mars. They are making a new a new living, a new life. They want to be there. They are going to have a family. Yeah, I mean, maybe that will come sooner than we think, and it will be an extraordinary moment because that change growing up in a low gravity environment from birth is undoubtedly going to have profound changes and it's not something for ethics reasons it's not something you can actually test no, and it's you know so. we, we don't know what will happen but let me let me go back a little bit because i think this is um, is a good a good connection we were talking earlier today uh, about the artificial gravity of the epstein mm. drive but of course the show and the book uses other types of artificial gravity, mm. rotational speed, of course. I mean, there's one massive ship called the Naubo, then it becomes 
well, I mean, if I tell you the other names later on, <laughs> it's a spoiler. Um, but uh, the Novo, which is a, there is this one generation ship commissioned by the Mormons because hmm. I don't know where they want to go. They want to load it up and go. In the end, they, it's not used for that, but it, it has a internal habitat that the drum that can be spun up and they have artificial gravity there. But on top of that, they also have belters living in certain asteroids like Eros or Ceres. Ceres? Ceres? How do you say Ceres, it? Ceres, yeah. Ceres. 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 And uh, they, they, the way they live in these asteroids is that they have hollowed them. They live inside the asteroids and they have, again, spun around the asteroids to generate some sort of artificial gravity inside it. So basically, if you are living inside the asteroid, your feet are pointing towards the skin of the mm. asteroid, towards the outside. This also generates the situation in which the closer you are to the skin of the asteroid, the less you are going to feel the, the Coriolis force, mm. the, the more you're going to feel the gravity because of, of, of the speed you, you can achieve, the rotational speed and the tangential speed you have there. Uh, so you can call that better quality gravity. Mm. Oh, I see where so you're going. So the this. people <laughs> living closer to the outside of the asteroid, this is prime real state. Mm. So this is the rich people tend to be government people. Mm. <laughs> and, and the and the, and, and the um, yeah. There's a there's a real and, and no, but wait. Then then <laughs> it's very hard for me to get to the point today, and we wanted to keep it short. <laughs> But then uh, people are living all around the asteroid and the poor people, the cheapest real estate is close to the center where you have the least gravity. So you have the poorest kids growing up in the worst conditions, not only as usual in terms of nutrition or access to education, but in terms of access to gravity and the medicines as well to help you develop in this environment. So there is this, this whole strata of of, um, I don't know if to call it a caste system, but there is certainly different social levels within the belters, and depending on where you grow and what you have access to. Yeah, I, I mean, all those all those social aspects are really, really cool. And of course, they, you know, they take their cues from Earth, don't they? There's a really cool scene, isn't there, in one of the episodes where someone's pouring a drink and they managed to get the Coriolis effect in, where the <laughs> yeah, where the kind of drink does a, does a dog yes. leg into the into the glass. It's quite good. Yeah, and 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 you can see that he has some practice with that. Already. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I, yeah. I mean, I wonder how long it would take you to get used to certain things. I mean, that that differential gravity is the worst, where where parts of your body are feeling it more than others. Is would just be awful, wouldn't it, all the time? But we are feeling it all the time. Well, yeah, but the the, <laughs> <laughs> but the gradient's not quite, you know, as bad as it. <laughs> I know, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. Oh, just pulling your leg. Okay, different. Well, I I just wanted to bring up Biology. one technology that I did think in the last in the last few years this thing has become massive. Obviously, CRISPR, CRISPR Cas9 in particular, is this 
gene editing technology that won the Nobel Prize in chemistry for 2020 for a start off. It's that it's that important. But I would consider it one of the most important developments of our lifetime. But recently there's been a further development of it where they where they can switch off these epigenetic genes and and switch them on and off using this CRISPR on-off switch. There's quite a lot of hope or thought that these kind of techniques, these CRISPR genetic engineering techniques, if we're really serious about space travel and living in the belt and living on Mars, I think it's the sort of stuff where we would have to seriously think about genetically engineering people to do it. And and the technology actually exists to do that. So you have done an episode recently with uh, Harid and, and Jenna. Mm-hmm. You talked about all these different organizations. I thought well, that's funny because I, I was part of Space Generation back in the day and did some work there. I didn't when even you realize that Harriet was. When I was young, now I'm 41. I did that in my mid-20s, early 20s. Anyway, and also the International Space University. And you know that I did the master's at the International Space University and I, I, have, I, I owe the International Space University so much. Um, it, it basically let me change my career from, I, I was actually working in the steel manufacturing industry in Argentina and with the master's, I went to the ISU and then I ended up uh, working for ESA. And you wouldn't have met me otherwise, so how, how ice is that? I, and and that, that for me is the, the biggest deal of going to ISU is that 15 years down the line, I got to meet ah, you. That's glory. Clearly. No, but uh, part of the master's is you have to do... Um, a project at the end in a team, and I chose the project for terraforming. And I recall that uh, one of the possibilities we were talking about, uh, of course, we read the bibliography and we were looking at different studies. One of the ideas as well was to genetically modify humans to have chlorophyll in the skin. And so green humans <laughs> that could harness directly the energy of the sun. And now with CRISPR, we can do that. Well, do you know what's really weird about that is that recently they've discovered these sea slugs that if you chop their heads off, they can carry on living without organs. And they think one of the ways this, this, this animal is doing it is using chlorophyll, somehow harnessing plant... <laughs> you know chlorophyll to keep itself alive and then it can grow its organs again how amazing is that so it's it's not it's not totally ridiculous that not not only that but the idea was as well that with that chlorophyll itself humans could be the generators of the oxygen that they would have to breathe eventually and that would help terraform mars oh wow have all these humans <laughs> expelling oxygen. You could have like plants. half the humans as chlorophyll humans and half the humans as mitochondria humans. It'd be absolutely epic. Yeah, and I'm sure from a societal point of view, there would be no divisions and everyone would look at themselves and consider themselves equals. And to make it easier, you could genetically modify them to be smaller. So they literally would be little green men from Mars. <gasps> That's where... It all comes from. Isn't that that's this is what it came. Little green men. Little green men from Mars. It's a human from the future that traveled back on a time machine. Which oh my god. 
<laughs> it all fits together. I think, Matt, if if this show never never airs and if if, if we if we die, <laughs> we'll know why. Or if we never existed in the timeline, it's because we have just cracked the code. <laughs> That's it. It's your 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 paper where they make chlorophyll men, chlorophyll humans. I like it though. Little green man. I I I I think that maybe maybe genetic technologies are more important than propulsion technologies when it comes to humans moving out into the solar system. What do you think? Um, if we're talking for for radiation, yes. If we can modify humans to... If you could use perfect use of the nutrients, you can also eliminate waste, mm-hmm. no poop to deal with. That's also good, right? Yeah. It would affect space travel, but it would affect... The whole planet. Yeah, well, I mean, like, imagine if you could genetically modify trees to absorb more carbon. Boom, done. You know, just save. Yeah, you just but save the planet. You have to be careful with that. <laughs> you have to be careful. What if you uh, absorb too much? Oh yeah, genetically modify mosquitoes to give everyone the COVID jab while absorbing carbon from the atmosphere. And that's the deal with mosquitoes. We either wipe them out with a gene drive or we say to them, look, you could do our bidding. And the mosquitoes are bound to take the trade. That's what I say. What, what happens when they become sentient? We'll cross that bridge when we get to it where there's more important things to, to <laughs> think about. Yeah, what, what could go wrong? Anyway, uh, <laughs> we've, we've, we've wandered away from the expanse. So, yes. ultimately... But it's okay, it's fine, because today we are talking about science yeah, fiction. Yeah, science right? fiction. Uh, do you know what? I, I think the expanse is really good, because it, it does have that really good balance between good storytelling and actual kind of hard sci-fi physics that keeps geeks like Julio... Satisfied. Yeah, satisfied. And and me, to yes. be honest. And I think I know I'd I'd much rather the story be good. And that's why I prefer the original Star Trek to the Star Trek the Next Generation, because sometimes they used to get bogged down in the science. Can I ask a question yeah. though? Is Holden Tell me. as serious as he is in the TV series as it, in the books? Because that's the only bit he's a he's a bit miserable, Holden. I want him to be a little bit funnier. In the, in the books, he's sort of that guy, very also very intense, very righteous, thinking that he's doing the. Mm. He he has all the, the pressure of the universe on his on his back, and and he always thinks he needs to do the the right thing, even when he ends up screwing things mm. up by thinking he's doing the right thing. I have to say that in, within the book and the show, because I think the casting was brilliant. Uh, Amos. Is my favorite character. Yeah, and actually, I've really enjoyed because what's we we should mention that the the thing about the expanse is that that they they decide to go down that exploring extra solar planets, you know, exoplanets because of this ring, the ring that is alien technology, and so you have that magic that enters the show. The proto molecule. I absolutely love the last series where it was more bringing it all back to Earth and and developing the characters and and seeing some of the, you know, it still didn't abandon its hard sci-fi roots and you had things like these massive underground prisons and lots of other different things going on. But the the books, this this last season that uh, features Amos back on Earth in the books is 10 times better. 10 times better. No way. Uh, it's brilliant how they 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 developed that. 
Um, indeed, there is also sometimes Holden going back to see his parents. Uh, they they picture as well the society in Earth has evolved in some different. Uh, for instance, Holden is like a kid. So apparently the planet is so overpopulated that if you, there is universal income, okay? And and few people that can work, most people are on, on a paycheck hmm. because there is not enough work for everyone. At the same time, apparently having kids is an issue uh, because of the overpopulation. So for instance, I think uh, holding has like, many parents, not only a couple, but many, many parents. <laughs> he grows in a communal society uh, where they all share the one kid. Crazy, eh? Yeah, see, see, the, anyway. the, it's a weird one, that one, because most of the science about population seems to suggest that we're going to peak pretty soon. Yeah, but... and. You know the saying, it, it takes a village to raise a kid? Yeah. Raising kids is a lot of work. I can see the advantage. <laughs> I don't know why you say that, Julio. <laughs> of, taking, of taking shifts with another set of parents. Yeah, raising kids <laughs> is definitely, an, uh, particularly uh, at the ones, that, the age you've got, Julio. That's, uh, it's making me by the way, By the way, talking, about talking, about, talking about young kids, warfare. Warfare is another... <laughs> warfare is another interesting part of the show that they get right. And I have not seen a show that gets this so right uh, probably since Battlestar Galactica. They also did uh, space uh, battles pretty good there. But what I like about The Expanse is that the warfare in The Expanse space battles are not small X-Wings fighting TIE fighters mm. as if it was just regular dogfights uh, by jet planes. But it's more like naval warfare between big ships and torpedoes and really, really long distances when hitting each other. And and uh, you, I mentioned the torpedoes, they also have railguns, basically just a big mass really accelerated really, really fast mm. in, in, in certain directions. Uh, even using rocks, just accelerating asteroids and pointing them at, at something and using that as a weapon. Well, yeah, I mean, that's we, in we space, as simple as that. But, but that, I mean, that I have to say is one of the most terrifying things about going out into the solar system is that idea that you could wipe out the Earth using by redirecting an asteroid is actually pretty feasible, isn't it? And that, that see, that is pretty feasible. And the fact that, yeah, you can use mass as such a deadly weapon. You know, it's 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 like, yeah. and the drive, like we said, a 35 terawatt drive on a, on a warship, having an accident in a spacecraft like that is potentially world-destroying. <laughs> like whacking that thing into the Earth is, is going you to be a big... You do not want that uh, launching... Yeah. From the planet. No. Yeah. In in this sort of future, I think this sort of show would work would would work better with space elevators to get in and out of the planet, mm. and then spaceships staying in space. That's that's how they went about it. Yeah. I mean, that's what I think about interstellar travel. I don't recall if they have space elevators in the in the in the book. No, I was think I was thinking that when I was thinking about like the, you know how do they get out of the gravity well, but there's there's not space elevators. Is they've 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 got they've even got most people have like a personal like rich people have got personal 
rockets that get personal shuttles. Personal shuttles, yes. shuttles yeah. In their in their in their weekend homes, yeah, <laughs> that they can just take off. Uh, by but by the way, I, I want to go back for a second for the to the topic of the asteroids mm-hmm. because you think it's terrifying. It's a nightmare scenario of the ability of someone out in space to point point an asteroid in our direction, big time. But <laughs> right now we are at the mercy of of chance. Mm-hmm. Because there could be an asteroid already on the way here, not shot by anyone else, but just by the universe. Yeah. Well, that well, and that just definitely like, will be at some point, right? Uh, yeah, it's not a matter of if; it's a matter of when. But in the show, in the books, the Earth has a asteroid defense system because, of course, we don't want to end up like the dinosaurs. So that exists, and. Uh, <laughs> We're completely spoiling that, but yeah, of course, the 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 this system, the anti-asteroid system, has to be sabotaged mm. in order for those asteroids to to hit the Earth. And those asteroids are also uh, made stealth using some sort of cover so that they cannot be detected by radar or, or long long distance um, by telescopes. So they come in stealth and with the disabled asteroid defense system. Yeah. I would expect, um, <laughs> I would hope that doesn't happen. But certainly this, this shows that we really need now, and we have certain missions already working on the demonstrations and, and pre-development of that, uh, of uh, space um, situation awareness, mm. okay? What's the, the asteroids are coming, uh, but also to develop the anti-asteroid uh, defense system. Yeah, I mean, we just see, we, we seem to be quite a long way off that, don't we? <laughs> Even, and and that seems to be a very. But it's crazy because yeah, you're talking yeah. about something that could just wipe out wipe out society, and we do not get our our act together. Yeah. Just look at look at COVID, massive massive failure on on the humanity <laughs> at, at humanity level, massive failure of coordination. Yep. Even with an imminent threat like this one, we could not coordinate at a global level. Yeah, I think about uh, global warming uh, the, the, that we know is happening, but it's more long term than COVID. We still cannot get together and agree on something. This is why I said that the, the expanse, the, the most uh, science fiction part of it is a United, United Nations that governs the whole planet. There is no such thing. Uh, I mean, there is a United Nations, but I don't see that sort of world government happening anytime soon. And that is probably what we need eventually to face these global threats. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I love it. Yeah, I, I, I do love it. I do. I, I think I think The Expanse is a, a fully successful programme. It's got, I don't know, I, I, the only thing I would change about The Expanse is make Holden just slightly more charismatic than he is. I, I just, I love that show. Uh, but The Expanse, by the way, another, I don't know if you noticed, all these strong characters are female. It's got a really good blend of characters. I, do you know, and I, I don't even want to call that unusual because I actually think that sci-fi has been doing that for a long time. Back to something like Alien. You'd have to be nuts if you don't distribute your characters amongst the, the genders, etc., etc. I think, it, you know... But they, they have been particularly good at that. Uh, Ava Sarala, the, um, uh, she starts as, I think, undersecretary of the UN. And eventually she takes takes mm. over, right? 
that character is just amazing. Where did they come from with that? Like that, yeah, old <laughs> Indian looking lady. I'm not talking about the show. I'm talking about the about the book, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's such a foul mouth, <laughs> and the character. It's brilliant what they did with that character. I think Avasarala is for me as much a favorite as as Amos. Probably for the same reason, brutal honesty. My last fact before we close up. The actor that the actor that plays Holden, Stephen Strait, was born on the same day as Werner von Braun. March the twenty-third. Anyway. Anyway, Julio, what are you doing this week? What fun and games are you up to? <laughs> work, work, work. And uh, actually now that IKEA reopened. Whoa. Lot, lots of IKEA assembly to do. Oof. New house. Nice. Yeah. 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 A massive Pax wardrobe, my favorite. Oh. <laughs> That's like backbreaking. I can honestly say if I never have to go to IKEA ever again in my life, I'll be a happy man. What are you planning to do this week? Oh, edit a podcast, get the podcast out, say hello to all the Spudcats out there. Hi, Spudcats. And uh, get on with doing a few lectures. I've got a bit of lecturing to do. Hopefully, my life's it's going to get a little bit easier now I've got all the marking out of the way. That's what's made my life a misery for the last couple of weeks is marking. Anyone who's a lecturer or a teacher out there will know that marking is quite simply... The worst of times. <laughs> it's so horrible. That sounds like a name. It is, honestly. It's it's quite horrible. And I, I'd never met a teacher or a lecturer who's who said, oh, I really like marking. <laughs> that is not something you'll ever hear, ever. <laughs> I, I guess this is why uh, multiple choice exams... Oh, yes, uh, beauty. ...enter into existence. Oh, my God. I've been trying desperately to work out a way that I can get GPT-3 to do my um, marking for me. <laughs> anyway, Julio, I'm going to say bye-bye to the Spudcats. Ready? Okay. Hear this? Bye-bye, Spudcats! Bye-bye. Bye-bye.